Our Father, we thank you for your immeasurable kindness to us. We who are sinners and deserve nothing but wrath, you have given us grace. In love, you inclined your heart to us and rescued us from our condition and brought us into your family, making us sons and daughters. We thank you for that. Lord, we turn to your word because we want to know the God of the word. I think of what Jesus said You look in the scriptures because you think that they have life, but they speak of me. We have life in you, but Lord, these scriptures teach us about you and what you're doing in us. So teach us again this morning. Holy Spirit, work on our hearts. Encourage us, affirm us, correct, convict. You do the work. I pray that we would listen well now to you and to your word proclaimed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would take your Bibles out and open to uh, 1 John chapter 4, we're cruising along here in our series, In the Light, 1 John chapter 4. Um, One of the job hazards of a pastor or preacher uh, is the temptation to look at a passage and with the best of intentions to analyze it so much that you analyze it to the point of abstraction. And if you're not careful, you can take... uh, you can take your, your careful inquiry into the text and you can actually turn the sermon into an autopsy of a dead text rather than the proclamation of the living word of God. And I really want to do the latter this morning and each morning. Uh, normally I spend about two-thirds of my time in what we call exegesis, which is uh, kind of studying and interpreting the passage in its historical, literary, and grammatical context. And then I spend about one-third of the time in application. I'm going to try to invert that a little bit today. Uh, I want to try to spend more time in application because I don't think this particular passage is begging for tons of explanation. I don't think it's a great mystery. We know what it's saying. But in fact, I think what we need more than anything is encouragement and imagination on how we go about living it out. So the heart of John's message here in the next 14 verses for this wounded church that he's writing to is really to get on with the Christian task of loving one another. In fact, the word love appears 27 times in 14 verses. So if repetition is the volume knob of Scripture, this is on full blast. This is an ear-piercing kind of saturation. If you read this passage and you didn't come away with an understanding that we're to love... You missed it, you know, read it again. But I actually think, too, that one of the kind of a subtle aspect that needs to be drawn out here is this, that John is not just telling us that we should love one another, but he's actually showing us that we can, that it's possible, that we're capable of this, that we have an example of love in the divine, and that we're equipped and empowered by God himself to do it. So the flow of your sermon is going to look something like this. Love one another. It's the distinguishing mark of a true Christian. That God himself is the example of love. And he is the source of Christian love. So let's read our passage. We'll get the sweep of it. And then we'll draw out some of these principles. And we'll we'll spend a good amount of time on application here. Verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Man, that's a big statement, isn't it? There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen can love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Okay, I don't think it's going to come as any great mystery here. First principle that he's pushing on is this, love one another. There you go. Pretty straightforward. Is that so hard? Is that so hard to do? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it depends, right? Some of you are like, have you seen the people in my life? Do you know my one another's? It's tough. It's going to be hard. And I think it's worth understanding that as fallen creatures, loving one another is not our default position. It's not what we're naturally inclined to do in our fallen state. Loving self, looking after number one, that's what fallen mankind is very good at. We've talked earlier in this series about what St. Augustine has called disordered loves. Originally, mankind is made in God's image, creatures capable of giving and receiving love. We were made for God himself, designed with the capacity to behold the love within the triune Godhead, and even to participate in that and to experience it. But Adam's, Adam and Eve's sin as our representative plunged the world into sin and decay and distortion. Consequently, the fall of man has distorted the image of God in us. It's not gone. It's not missing. But it's marred. It's distorted. And we are left with these disordered loves, as Augustine calls them. The fallen nature of mankind, our nature, is then warped, turned inward upon ourselves. And that is why there are things in the world like the misuse of power that we see and the greed that abounds and why prostitution and pornography exist, why embezzlement happens and why abuse is rampant. All of these ills that the world is complaining about and trying to solve with any number of social issues are really the result of the fall of mankind. Because we were made to be lovers, 
But because of the fall, we have become lovers of ourselves. Sin has corrupted our operating system, if you will, so that now we exist as creatures with disordered loves. That is the present condition of fallen mankind. And the pursuit of self-serving love leaves a wake of victims. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, though, we can be saved, not only from the guilt and the penalty of our sin, but from its power and its hold on our lives. As we become disciples of Jesus, we are being made new. In obedience and discipleship, God is giving us our lives back, reconstituting us as he meant us to be, repairing and reordering our lives and our loves. We've been regenerated from the guilt and the consequences of sin, but also from the control of self-serving lusts. And I say praise God to that. We're regularly being renewed by the Spirit of God, which means we are now capable of exercising truly self-giving love. Instead of self-serving lusts, we are able to exercise self-giving love. So when the command is given here, love one another. It's not an impossible command. It might be hard, uh, depending on who it is you've got to love around you, but it's not impossible. You're able, because of God's redemptive work in your life to reorder your loves and affections, you're capable of loving. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. For everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And that takes us to our second point, that love is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. Our uh, family is pretty big into comics, not comic books, but like comic strips. And uh, I grew up loving Calvin and Hobbes. We got any Calvin and Hobbes fans in here? Yeah. I had, I don't know if I had all the books, but I had a bunch of them, most of them, and I would pour over them. I thought they were hilarious and thoughtful and all the rest. And uh, so I loved that as, as a kid. And um, Augustine, or Gus, our youngest, is our uh, resident scholar on Calvin and Hobbes. As we go through family life and things happen, Gus will say, oh, there's a Calvin and Hobbes about that, and will inform us. It's really got a pretty good uh, reservoir of information there. It's interesting. Uh, but even more than Calvin and Hobbes, I, I really liked Gary Larson's Far Side. Oh, one tile, one frame, one caption, so much said, right? It's really just beautiful. And as I was thinking about this particular sermon and I got to this point that love is the distinguishing mark of a Christian, I couldn't help but to think of this particular tile here. That's a bummer of a birthmark, Hal. That's my kind of humor right there a bummer of a birthmark. Yeah. Well, one could say that love is the birthmark of a Christian. It is the evidence that one is truly born again or not. In other words, if the true and the living God indwells us by his spirit and the supreme description of him is love, and that's the defining characteristic, then quite frankly, that love will permeate our life. It'll be conspicuous and observable by others. If we're living in him, 
The aroma of love will be all around us. Francis Schaeffer has said it maybe better than most. He says this, Let us be careful indeed to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers. For years, the Orthodox Evangelical Church has done this very poorly. So it is well to spend time learning to answer the questions of men who are about us. But after we have done our best to communicate to a lost world, still we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gives is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. And Jesus did say it. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. The final apologetic of the gospel. In other words, Jesus gave a metric to the world, a standard by which they could judge us on whether or not we really are true Christians, which is a scary thing to think about. Now, in our culture, um, love is proposed to be many things. And the love that we find in the scriptures, Christian love has in fact been co-opted and distorted and promoted as many other kinds of uh, distortions in our culture. So we almost need to define it or to give a godly and biblical example of what it is, and John actually does that for us here. God has shown us what love looks like, verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. One of the ways that we see God's love demonstrated, what it looks like, is this, that God loves sinners prior to their salvation. He doesn't withhold it. He doesn't hit pause on it. He doesn't hang on to his love. He doesn't have it as an offering, waiting, waiting when you get your life cleaned up and then maybe, maybe I'll offer it to you. His love is prior. His love is constant, universal, monotonous, unconditional, impartial, not contingent on any life circumstance. You can't make God love you more. You can't make him love you less. His love is constant and sure. And that means that if you and I are putting our love on hold for others until they get cleaned up, sanitized, set right, tidy, reformed, then we are not loving like God loves I also think it's important to understand that love is not just an emotion. You might call it a heart action or a posture towards our fellow man, a disposition towards. God's displayed love for us was a shocking gesture of giving, giving the best he had for those who did not deserve it. If you want to Potential definition of love, how about this? Love is self-giving. 
Again, I think, however, it's amazing to me how many Christians, myself included, that we don't typically mimic this kind of love from God. Ours looks very different than his. We typically reserve. We keep our love on hold, back, waiting, until someone is cleaned up and sanitized a little. But true Christian love reflects God's love, loves the sinner in the midst of their sin, prior to the conversion them, and then loves them enough to work hard for their conversion. Unconditional love is the example of God's love and is therefore the standard of Christian love. Well, here's the other side of the coin. God made atonement for our sin. Loving somebody in the midst of their sin does not mean we support their sin. It doesn't mean we encourage their sin, accept it, affirm it, or ignore it. The real loving response to either a believer or a non-believer's sin is that we grieve the sin because in love for the person, we know that that sin is ultimately a burden, a shackle, a barnacle on their life, distorting and deforming their life and robbing them from life that is truly life, the life that God offers. So we grieve that sin. We're not soft on it. God loves us enough to make atonement for our sin. He wanted to pull us out of its deforming action. But it's love that motivates God to do this for us. It's not an allergy to sin. It's love for that which is his own. And unfortunately, again, I think Christian miss God's heart in our own reforming influences and people's lives around us. I think sometimes we're motivated by other things. Disgust, outrage, anger, fear, threat, self-interest. It was love that motivated God. Children of God must love as God loves third thing we look at here, that we are to imitate God's initiating and gracious love. Initiating and gracious. There's this great poem. Uh, the author is uh, Richard Wilbur. And I've, just the title itself, just, you could almost just dismiss the entire poem after it and just think on and reflect on the title. Love calls us to the things of this world. Love calls us to the things of this world. And I think there are two real threats for Christians today, the world being what it is, hostile to God, ugly, seemingly falling apart more and more and more and more. Uh, I, can, I start to understand, I'm only 45, just turned 45. Uh, I'm starting to understand why some old people are really grouchy. <laughs> the longer you live, the world can fall apart more and more over time, right? I get it, old people, I'm with you, I'm well on my way. So we know this. We, we look around and we think, what is happening around us? And the temptation for Christians, I think, is twofold right now. The first one is this, attack. Go into attack mode. Christianity is distorted. There's threatening social issues. We're upset about politics and policies and initiatives and threatening movements, and we're rightfully so. We're upset about them. The problem would be that, if, that the tenor of Christians were that we were angry in attack mode. We would be misrepresenting the gospel. That's not what we have been called to. We've been called to the mission of God, not to change culture. We're changing hearts and souls and destinations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. One temptation for Christians right now, attack. 
The other temptation for Christians right now is retreat. Run away, run away. Find a safe Christian enclave. Be safe. Preoccupy ourselves and all of our times and our efforts with sanitized communities that run a parallel existence to the world. Have no engagement with the world. Just live on the sidelines in a bunker. These are the two temptations that are calling out to us. Attack or retreat. But the message of Christ given to his ambassadors, which is us, is to engage. To live engaged. To live in the terribly excruciating difficult position of engaged in the world, in it, not of it, contending for its salvation, but not hating it, engaged as our Lord was engaged. God made atonement for our sins by being initiating and gracious. And so Christians propelled by love need to do this same thing, initiating gospel conversations that are full of grace and truth. Paul reminds us of this in Colossians 4. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace and seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. There is a brand of Christian out there that is full of salt and every now and then have a brush with grace. Fourth part of our message here. God is the source of Christian love. We don't manufacture this. We don't muscle up. We don't find it in our pockets. I don't have a reservoir of it. God funds it. He gives it to me. He is the source. He gives it to you. In other words, God doesn't just give a command here that's impossible to achieve. Someone could tell me, Eric, we know you like basketball. Why don't you dunk a basketball? And I could be like, man, if wishing made it so. My whole life, my whole life I wanted to dunk a basketball. I can remember as a kid, I would dream about it. No kidding. I would lay in my bed and I would dream that I got airborne and it was coming down. I was going to stuff this thing. And then I'd wake up like you had, you know, like the falling dream. I'd wake up right before I dunk it and I'd be laying in bed, flexing every muscle I had. Nuts. I didn't get it again. Never dunked the ball in my life. Used to be able to get a lot of rim in my hand. That's it. You could tell me, Eric, dunk a basketball. Fly across that ravine. Swim the ocean. Part your hair on the other side, Eric. (laughs) You can tell me these things. I can't do it. It's not going to happen. All the wishing in the world. Not going to make it happen. I don't have that. These commands that are given here This command of love is a command we can achieve. We can do it, not in and of ourselves, but because God empowers us to do it, because he has changed our hearts, because he indwells us by his spirit, because it is God loving others through us. We're just the vessel, just the instrument, but he is the force and the funding. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. 
This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have the confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Now, I'm just going to lay out two points here, and I'm not going to develop them fully because I want to get on to some, some more application stuff. But a couple things we see here. We are anchored in God's love. That produces a security for us. And I think one of the things that's happening in the original church here is they've just come out of this split, remember? And I think one of the questions was, gosh, these people left us. How do we know who's saved? How do we know? What are the marks? What's the evidence? That's something we've talked about. But I think the next question is, how do I know I'm saved? How do I know I'm in? How do I know I can be secure? And I think that's a lot of what John is getting at here. We're anchored in his love. His love is the evidence. This love that abounds in our lives is the evidence that we belong to him, that he is alive in us. But also we are animated by his love. Genuine love confirms our salvation. Or as Jesus said, the one who is forgiven much loves much. When we know what we have been forgiven, we are animated by God's abundant love to love others. So I want to get on with some application here because, again, I think you, you know that you're supposed to, but how? How do we? What are some ways we can practically love others? And I want to give you a, an acronym here. I thought Pastor Adam's acronym last week, BOD, work on your BOD. That was great. Mine's not nearly as cool, but that's all right. I'm using love, L-O-V-E. First thing we can do to work on loving others. Uh, listen is the first one. Listen. Listen to them. Listen to somebody's story. I could have a full-time job if I took out an ad in the paper or put something on the internet that said, I will listen to you for as long as you want. My, I would be full-time busy. People would even pay me to do it. Listen to them. And when I say listen, I don't just mean hear them I don't mean listen so that you can respond, correct, form your rebuttal. Listen empathetically, which means listen for understanding. Listen to know where they're coming from. Listen for why they said what they said, why they didn't say something else. Show them that they have the floor. Keep talking. I'm with you. And if you give them that honor, they will feel loved and be loved. Listen to somebody. It is one of the foremost ways that we feel loved. Secondly, observe needs and meet them. That's the O. Observe needs and strive to meet them. Christ, for the big, divine, dramatic errand that God had sent him to the world to die on the cross and raise from the dead, still did very simple, rudimentary things that showed love, right? When people were hungry, he gave them food. When they were sick and ill, he healed them or provided comfort. When the kids were restless and rowdy, he said, come on, hang with me. He washed feet. He walked among the lowly. He served. He saw needs and he met them. And he met them. 
even while meeting the biggest and the divine uh, situation that was going on, he still cared about the everyday needs, and he met them. Observe needs and meet them. Thirdly, the V, verbalize. Verbalize your love for others. Say it in words or in print. Put it in a card. People are wandering around every day with all kinds of lies in their head, feelings of self-doubt, lacking self-worth, wondering if anybody cares or even notices. And when we tell somebody that we love them, we look them in the eye and we say, I love you, and they hear it, it matters. Uh, one of my, I mean, this is going to sound a little bit trite, but one of my favorite things is when my wife comes up close and looks me in the eye and says, I love you. She doesn't assume it. She doesn't assume that I know. But when she says it, it man, it just melts you. Just celebrated our 22nd anniversary. Yeah, 22 years. And we're more in love now than when we started. Praise God. Say it. Use the words. Put it in print. Make sure somebody knows you love them. E, engage. Engage others in areas of their life. I think the temptation is perfectly fine to engage in the areas that we have common ground. They like fishing, go fishing with them. They like biking, go biking with them. But you know a way you can love them even more? Engage in areas of their life that you have no interest. I'll tell you a story. When I was about 13, I was outside playing basketball in my front yard, which is what I did all the time. If you wanted to know where Eric was, he was shooting hoops in the front yard. And my family was not a sports family or a basketball family. I was kind of the black sheep in that sense. So I'm out there shooting hoops, and my dad comes out. Didn't ask him to. He never played a game, never played on a team, never played ball before. Came out, picked up the ball, Dribbled it how you shouldn't. Two hands, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> he pulled it back behind his head and took a bad shot and missed. I got the rebound and threw it back at him, and I felt so loved that my dad would come out and do what he didn't like because I did. I think we only played ball that one time, but it matters to me. He loved me, not because it was our common ground, because it was uncommon ground, and he would move towards me. Love one another. It is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. God himself is the example of it and the source of it. He funds our love. God has left us on earth and we could supply many things that we think he's left us for, but principally he has left us here to be his ambassadors. The mission of God is to reconcile sinners to himself and we're the ones who are supposed to do it. That's job number one. To be his ambassadors. All of us are called, commissioned to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to our neighborhood, our work, our home, or overseas. We're all called to be missionaries, ambassadors for Christ. And one of the best arguments and apologetics for the gospel is the church community that so conspicuously loves one another that the world can't help but to see and smell it. That's what we're to be about, church. Not only that we should... But the great message here is we can. He's shown us and he's empowered us to do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your incredible love for us. That you would look at rebels and say, I got you and I'm bringing you back. That you would give what is most costly and most beloved to you, your own son. 
And Jesus, in your love, you would be self-giving. Spirit of God, you indwell us and turn our hearts to the Son and to the Father, and you help us to love. We the instruments and you the force. We've been loved much. We've been forgiven much. Help us to love others as we have seen in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.